Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. Imagine yourself in this situation. You get an urgent phone call about a gig coming up two days from now. And it's an ensemble gig, so you need to find four more musicians to play with you. Who are the first four musicians you would call? And what made you think of these particular people? Did you pick them because you've performed with them before? Because they're good musicians? Because they're dependable? Because you trust them? Now think about the musicians you didn't think to call. What is it about them that made you not want to call them? Do they not play as well as the musicians you would ask? Or do you not know them as well? Do they make you uncomfortable in some way? Or would you be embarrassed for them to find out that you're performing for that kind of gig? In a freelance gig economy many musicians find themselves in, who you know is just as important as how well you play. If you've been following this podcast for a past couple of months, you'll notice that there's a huge desire for inclusivity and diversity in the world of classical music right now. But any working musician will tell you that the real world of work based on working gigs and networking does not always match the ideals we're aiming for. There are many roadblocks in the way of the ideal of classical music for all. And here to help us make sense of the realities of freelance classical music work is Dr. Christina Scharf, reader and associate professor of gender, media, and culture at King's College London. Over the past 10 years, she has been studying the world of classical musicians through the lens of an international academic and sociological perspective. Her book, Gender, Subjectivity, and Cultural Work, The Classical Music Profession, as well as her more recent research, goes into detail about these roadblocks. She was kind enough to talk me through some of her research, and to be clear, her aim is not to judge or condemn classical musicians or classical music itself. But her goal is to share the observations from an academic perspective and offer encouragement to classical musicians. So, Dr. Christina Scharf, welcome to Musicians versus the World. Thank you very much for your introduction, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that you're here to speak with us. I'm very interested in your research. I came across it as I was looking into patterns and things that are happening in the world of classical music and maybe the future of classical music. And I came across your research and went down this rabbit hole because there is so much and it's so well done. And I'm wondering for my first question, what is it about classical musicians in the classical music world that has interested you so much? It's a very good question. Thank you. I think it's a bit serendipitous as it often can be actually with academic research at least in my experience. As you said initially, I joined the Department of Culture, Media and Creative Industries at King's College London in 2010. And what we do at the department is that we do um broadly speaking research on the cultural and creative industries from a variety of disciplinary perspectives. So as a staff member there I started to become very interested in the working lives of artists and creatives particularly around questions of the often very precarious working lives that they have being freelancers having to network to find work very project based work and so on and I wanted to explore this in more detail and I was looking for a cultural sector to explore this within And at the same time I realized that there wasn't so much critical or sociological research on the classical music field. There have definitely been important studies, but not as many as say of film or new media and so on. 
Um, and I also had a bit of a background myself as somebody who plays the violin, sang in choirs for many years. I've also played in orchestras and string quartets, never in any professional capacity, so not at all. But at least I had an idea of what it means to play music in this field, also some of the technical aspects of it, you know. So I also felt like I could do research on this field. Because you had a little bit of insight into what goes into it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and also because I thought it was important in, in sociology, there's been a lot of research on popular culture and sociology and cultural studies, which are both my fields, um, you know, for very good reasons to kind of move away of this hierarchy between high and low culture partly. But that also means that there hasn't been that much research then on more high cultural forms such as classical music. And so I thought I could really contribute something to our understanding of classical music as a high cultural form or one that is often perceived as such, certainly something that can be problematized, but this is how it's often positioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that the world of classical music is trying to become more accepting lately and trying to get more different types of people to be interested in classical music, to join. Where do you see that your research kind of fits into that? I would hope that the main contribution of my research is really an understanding why inequalities in relation, for example, to the underrepresentation of women in positions of authority and prestige, the underrepresentations of black um, and minority ethnic players, as we call it here in the UK and the, and the United States, I think it's more about uh, black people and people of color. Um, mm -hmm. So just to be clear about different terminologies. Yeah. Um, um, there are many exclusions in this field, also in relation to class and socioeconomic background. Um, and I hope that my research, by drawing on a longer history of research in sociology and cultural studies on work and labor in the cultural and creative industries, can really add to our understanding why these inequalities continue to exist. Mm -hmm. um, at least until now, hopefully this will change. <laughs> There's always hope. So I hope that's my main contribution to bring an academic and scholarly perspective, a perspective that distinctly does not come from within the industry, although I, of course, have done lots of interviews with classically trained musicians, and that's always very important to my work. But it's, it's a perspective that is informed by sociological and thinking and cultural studies and critical theory, feminist theory, and so on. And I think that this can really bring important insights to the table. Mm. Oh, that is very interesting. So you think that the academic view is going to be different than someone who's inside the classical music world? Yes, I think it can be different. Yes. Um, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, people who are inside the classical music world don't have their own very valid knowledges? Absolutely not. And I think it's also not about establishing a hierarchy of knowledge that one form of knowledge is better than the other. Right. But I think as with every type of knowledge, we shed light on specific aspects and not on others, right? Mm -hmm. So I think within the industry, there's a very good understanding. Well, there's an understanding now more of, you know, some of the problems. Right. Um, and there is now also much more debate about this. Uh, but I think in terms of analyzing why these problems continue to exist, um, sociological research can add a succinct angle mm -hmm. um, that is important. For example, what we know from wider research on the cultural and creative industries is that a lot of the work is freelance and network-based, right? right? And it's often very short-term. So you know you have to play at a gig tomorrow, you still have to find three extra players and you have to 
you know, find someone quickly so you contact the people you know. Right. And we know from sociological research that this often creates exclusions because of so-called homophily. Individuals are more likely to hang out with people who are similar to them in terms of gender, in terms of racial background, class background, and so on. And this perpetuates inequalities. Mm. Um, and these kind of insights, I think, are quite crucial to understanding why they continue to exist. Um, you know, and what yeah. can we do about it? is an interesting question because it's very much related to the project-based nature of this work. And I don't think there, there are so many easy answers, but certainly what individuals can do is to have to pause and think and be like, actually, is there someone else I can think of, you know, mm. who could also play in this gig, um, who might come from a working class background, for example, or who is black or, you know, mm -hmm. identifies as trans, whatever it is that the person thinks might be needed in that particular context. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so having someone from the outside look in just gives you a different perspective because when you're in it, you're kind of raised with the norms and the social norms that usually yes. happen. And so a lot of those things happen when you're not even really thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, I think what what I found really interesting, what I explored a lot in my research, my my book Had the, had, had the word subjectivity in the title, which is a bit of a mouthful. I'm, I'm aware of it. But I was interested in exploring how the ideal self of a musician is often constructed. Um, yes. And how this is often gendered in terms of privileging masculinity. It's often racialized in terms of privileging whiteness. And it's often classed in terms of privileging middle classness. So, for example, I heard in numerous interviews problematic portrayals of East Asian or Asian players, again, here the terminology is different, whether you're in the UK or in the US, uh -huh. um, as robotic, um, as very technical, as lacking in musicality. Mina Young has written about this. Mari Yoshiara has written about this years ago. So, so there has been a lot of scholarship on that. I say this to acknowledge this important scholarship and that I'm building on that. Um, and I found this also in, my, in the interviews I conducted with classically trained musicians in 2012 and 2013 in London and Berlin. And what is interesting here is that there were then assumptions, racialized assumptions about who counts as more musical and who doesn't. Oh, really? Um, so there was an implicit association between whiteness and musicality, and this was expressed in constructions of the ideal musician. And, you know, that's not to say that, um, that this is an absolute positioning. Of course, we know of incredibly successful Asian players in classical music. Mm -hmm. But it's to say that these are constructions that can have an effect and that continue to have an effect. And that this is how exclusions can work sometimes in more subtle and yet still very powerful ways. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to that idea of musicians and their identity. You were saying that there was a very gendered aspect to that. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, so the gendered aspect came to the fore in different ways. So, for example, musicians also talked about the ways in which they felt they had to be really committed to their work as a musician, mm -hmm. a labor of love, which for them was incredibly passionate, incredibly fulfilling in many ways. And I think that's a really important aspect to highlight and underline. Um, <laughs> I don't want my research to come across as too critical. Um, <laughs> but some of them then expressed attention. A lot of the musicians I spoke to were musicians who identified as women and who were early career 
And so most of them did not have children, but they thought about having children and they were afraid that they would be either perceived as no longer fully committed to their work as a musician mm -hmm. um, or that, that it would be difficult to combine a career in music with caring responsibilities. Right. Um, so, so there were tensions around that. And the reason I mentioned that, it wasn't just what we typically hear about, you know, women aren't represented in certain fields because they go off and have babies. This is slightly problematic. Because <laughs> <laughs> this argument, that's not the argument I'm making because I think uh, it's problematic to the extent that it doesn't tell us much about other forms of exclusion that are happening. And it also seems to reiterate the link between women as caregivers, which mm -hmm. is difficult to negotiate because I know statistically women do much more of the care work. So it's important to talk about the gender dimension of that. Um, mm -hmm. But we also have to be careful not to uh, cement that link between women and caregiving, right? So, right. so that that's so this needs to be treated with care this action. But again, there there were these constructions of the ideal musician as completely committed to their work. Mm -hmm. And there were then perceived tensions around also having, for example, a child and being really emotionally invested in your music. And how then do you also incorporate the love of your child? Is that's how one musician put it, for example. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, And there were also interesting gender dynamics around networking and particularly self-promotion. I found that very interesting. So the interviews yes. that I conducted, I asked the musicians about how they usually get work and the freelancers in particular spoke about the importance of networking and also self-promotion. Mm -hmm. um, and these were very interesting moments in the interviews because they were very effect laden. So then the musicians would often say, Oh, but I hate it. I hate it so much, you know, and, and I fully understand in academia, we also have to self-promote and I hate it. So, I <laughs> um, but what was then interesting is when I asked them about the reasons mm -hmm. um, and they struck me as very gendered. So some musicians, for example, said, well, you know, it's, It, it bespeaks a lack of modesty if you are out there, you know, and you self-promote and they were, and they're feared being seen as, I guess, insufficiently feminine. And importantly here, I'm not arguing that there is some kind of, you know, biological feminine essence that keeps right. women from self-promoting promotion, not at all. What I'm arguing is that there are norms associated with mm -hmm. women, however we define that category, and that women are often expected to be more modest. We know this about wider research on self-promotion, right? Mm -hmm. So they felt that there might have been a clash there between self-promotion, but doing that as a woman. They thought that it might be easier for men to engage in that kind of, you know, behavior. So this was one dimension, but also some of the research participants talked about the ways, for example, in which Self-promotion was conceived of as a very commercial activity, which took away mm -hmm. from the artistry and the art. Mm. So they uh, talked about this uh, frequently made distinction between art and commerce, you know. Yeah. And at the same time, they also talked about how they, as women, struggled to be taken seriously as artists and that they always already felt one step removed from being an artist because they were women and so then they felt if they're then engaged in promotional activities and self-promotion this would take them as a commercial activity this would take them away even further from being seen and taken seriously as an artist so mm -hmm. so these kind of analyses shed light on you know some of the more complex dynamics um 
and and they are important and i think this takes us back to the beginning of our discussion in terms of you know what can a sociological analysis add to our understanding uh, mm-hmm. Because we, for example, know that uh, musicologists, conservatoires, as you call them here in the UK, um, have increasingly moved to encouraging students to be more entrepreneurial, to deal with okay. the challenges of working life in music. Um, but we have to ask questions about who can be entrepreneurial, you know, um, so who can easily network and self-promote and so on. And my research shows that this is often gendered in class, specifically in terms of self-promotion and networking. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So even if someone else will talk to those musicians and say, oh, no, 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 we're not trying to make you feel less than, we're not trying to do that, the fact that they feel that way is already a hindrance. I think so, yeah. And and also in terms of networking, for example, it's about knowing the correct codes of behavior, right? Feeling yeah. comfortable in specific places. As we know in classical music, this can often be quite intimidating, whether you, for example, play um, in, in in a private house concert and, and whether you feel comfortable in a, in a kind of upper-class environment, for example, but also whether you feel comfortable having small talk with people. It can also, of course, relate to whether English is your native language or not or how fluent you are in English, you know, um, whether you know the correct codes of behavior for, you know, networking. These are all very class practices. Yes. Uh, we know that from wider research and on other cultural and creative industries as well. So, so, so to just tell musicians they have to go out there and network to find work um, has its limitations, or at least there are things we need to think about. Um, and networks themselves are structured by gender, race, and class. So... Mm. Women, for example, tend to have networks. Uh, we know this from a study on the film industry, but they might not be as influential because of already existing, for example, vertical segregation where women are not at the top of the hierarchy, as it were. So, so their networks might be more horizontal or something like that. So, mm. so these are all things to consider when giving advice, that these dynamics can play out differently depending on where on musicians' demographic background. Wow. Well, that's very, very interesting. An interesting word that you said in your research that I loved, and I was hoping you could explain a little bit, is genre hierarchies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So this is a study I conducted together uh, with a colleague of mine, Dr. Anna Bull, who is at Mm -hmm. the University of York in the UK. And to wrote a brilliant book, Class Control and Classical Music. Um, I very much recommend it, where she also looked, well, where she looked in particular at class in the context of classical music. Mm-hmm. And we were interested in exploring classical music as a genre. And we start out the piece by arguing that classical music is not so often considered as a genre. Sometimes right. it's considered as, as universal, which has its own problems, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you are aware of because it establishes a hierarchy of classical music as, you know, somewhere at the top of the hierarchy. Um, So in 2019, I interviewed 18 early career musicians who identified as women in the UK, uh, in London. They were all based in London. And uh, I also asked them a question about classical music as a genre and Mm -hmm. how it relates to other genres and how they'd see it. And uh, what was very interesting is that they often said, and at the same time problematized, so that's really crucial, that classical music was often positioned at the top 
of the genre hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So um, they talked about their teachers at music college looking down on popular music, for example. Mm-hmm. They also said, as they mentioned, a very well-known hierarchy in classical music. And I say well-known because it's also been documented in other studies that uh, when you come out of music college, there's the idea you, you know, ideally you become a soloist. If that's not possible, you become an orchestral player. Right. And then you enter the tricky territory of freelancing, you know, and then it's no longer quite so clear how well you are doing. <laughs> and, and There's like things. orchestra and everything else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. And it's interesting because uh, most musicians, I think, at least in the UK, work as freelancers and right. have so-called portfolio careers. You know, and we know there there is not that much space for so many internationally renowned soloists because there can only be that many so right right yeah so it's interesting that this kind of hierarchy aspirational hierarchy or whatever you want to call it seems to continue to exist and then within freelancing the musicians we spoke about they also mentioned certain hierarchies so for example doing pop music was you know looked down upon some of them also played in theater and that wasn't taken as seriously even though it might have been better paid you know, in terms of freelance work, uh, the better regarded type of work was to adapt for orchestras. So that's to kind of fill in for players who mm-hmm. can play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's also always there's always teaching as a form mm-hmm. of work. Um, and we know that that's very gendered. So in the UK, the figures I cite in my book, I think, are that around 70% of music teachers are women. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at conservatoires, I think 30% are women. So the higher you move up the hierarchy, you know, you find typical, again, right. a pattern of virtue. And I think that's very similar in the U.S. as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it were, if it was very similar. Yeah. Yeah, so this is what we were interested in, really, in um, when we looked at genre, because for some time, Dr. Anna Bull and I had the feeling that there was more to be said about classical music as a genre mm-hmm. and how hierarchies and exclusions are constructed by talking about classical music as a genre or not seeing it as a genre, you know, by simply taking it as, you know, a kind of universal art form almost. Um, So this is what we wanted to do with this research and the article we then wrote um, is to shed light on these dynamics. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I found so interesting about this genre hierarchy is especially for a freelance musician who, you know, maybe 95% of musicians are freelance musicians, that they would look down on a job that pays better than, you know, the ideal. Mm. You know, if it gives you security and you're playing music that you love and and it pays well, it's amazing to me that it would still be looked down on yeah. compared to maybe playing in an orchestra or even just subbing for an orchestra. That's not consistent work. So, why would that be looked as higher work than something that's a consistent paying job? Yeah. Did they give reasons for that? I think it had to do with these genre hierarchies. So they would still do that work, I think, because, you know, they all have to butter their bread as it were. Right. And, but they might not advertise it. So I think we quote in, in the article, we quote a research participant who actually plays a lot at weddings and so on. Um, mm-hmm. and, but she said she makes sure that this doesn't appear online you know so she presents herself 
as an artist in a particular way online, and yet mm -hmm. a lot of her money comes from other work. And I think this has exactly to do with the genre hierarchies that we just discussed, that there's this idea that certain types of music are more valuable than others. Mm -hmm. And I think it also ties in into the wider context of artistic labor, if you wanted to call it that, or work in mm -hmm. the creative artistic field. So Andrew Ross, who I believe is still at NYU, he has coined this concept of sacrificial labor that, you know, artists, but also academics, we are enculturated in that, in the sense that we do a lot of work that might be unpaid or not paid enough or free <laughs> um, in order to progress in our careers, right? And that's mm -hmm. quite common in, class in classic music. Oh, yes. Um, and mm -hmm. it appears, you know, that you, you, that you do something for free because you hope that you get your foot in the door and it can further your career and you can say, I played with this, this and that person and I met them and so on. Um, yes. And, and I think this is a dynamic that is related to the issue around pay, right? In another context, it would make sense that you go for whatever pays most But mm -hmm. I think in artistic fields, that hierarchy can be constructed differently, especially mm -hmm. also uh, linking back to what I mentioned earlier about these perceived tensions around art and commerce, you know, art on one side, commercial on the other. Sometimes mm -hmm. what uh, is deemed most artistic is not commercial at all and vice versa if something becomes too Uh, successful commercially, it might lose its artistry, at least right. in terms of how people perceive of it. So I think all these dynamics play a role um, mm -hmm. in this particular context. Yes, that romantic view of the starving artist. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It, you, yeah. You hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was really happy to hear that in the UK that the conservatories and all of the music um, schools are starting to train musicians how to be entrepreneurial. That is very, very exciting to me because a big part of this podcast is to help those musicians who maybe didn't get that training yeah. in music school can yeah. actually make a living doing this. Yeah. So that makes me very, very happy to hear. There was a quote in your study that says, the genre hierarchies seem to be produced and reinforced by institutions, most notably music colleges. This hierarchy of values resulted in musicians having a more limited education and poorer training for a musical career. Mm -hmm. And that is yeah. very sad in a way. Yeah. But I was hoping maybe you could explain a little bit and then how the music schools are, are changing a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of the wider context, I think these what we say in the article is that these hierarchies are seem to be reproduced at music college, but also in terms of musicians' networks. Right. right. That once you are, uh, once you have your foot in, in, you know, depping for orchestras or theater work, that's where you kind of get more of your work from. So it self perpetuates. Mm -hmm. um, so just to, to clarify that point. To clarify. Yes. yes. Uh -huh. and, and, but yeah, it has to do with, for example, the ways in which music colleges structure their educational programs. For example, in the UK, I believe it is still the case that you do either jazz or classical. Right. Uh, and of course, not all instruments lend themselves to all genres, but brass instruments, for example, do, you know, piano, mm -hmm. jazz. I mean, there's, so, so I think that's something worth thinking about, but it was also something the research participants said, they described these genre hierarchies as something that was also reproduced by teachers in terms mm -hmm. of varying certain forms of, music more highly than others or seeing for example musical theater as as a lower art form you know mm -hmm. um, so yeah i think that's that's a field that higher education needs to think about 
mm-hmm. um, in terms of the ways in which the training of musicians is set up, particularly in relation to preparing them for work across genres. Also, for example, improvisation. I, mm-hmm. I think it's something that is not commonly taught to students who pursue a more classical. And that could have something to do with that the teachers themselves weren't trained in it, yeah. so they don't feel yeah. confident teaching it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. of course, there's, there's enough to learn, you know, in terms of repertoire and technique and so on. Yes. Just, oh, my goodness, just yes. Just in inverted commas, pursuing one instrument to a very, um, you know, to, to an excellent standard. So I also understand the limitations in that. But thinking about musicians' portfolio careers and preparing them well for a career um, seems to suggest that there's room to think about incorporating different genres yeah, and perhaps maybe adding a marketing class or a yes. business business yeah. development class yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, that's something that the musicians I interviewed in 2012, 2013 commented on a lot, that coming out of music college to them was like a wake-up call. They had no idea of how to do their own taxes, of how to find work, that they felt quite cushioned by music college and their music education up until this point because it tends to be quite structured. Right. And then they were thrown into the deep end and they had to figure out how to, you know, how to make it work. Um, so yes, I agree. Right. And now that there's all of this empirical evidence that you've been collecting, um, I think universities would be more willing to look at that and use that as data and evidence of why they should maybe look into different types of courses to add into their yeah add into their training. Yeah. I think what's important to bear in mind there are some of the issues we touched on earlier on around, you know, who can who can network, who finds it easy to self-promote. Entrepreneurialism isn't necessarily it it equips individuals, I think, with the skills they need to navigate a very precarious working environment. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think we also need to think about wider structural issues and the ways in which we could make this working environment less precarious, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a difficult that's thing a difficult to do. One. And I realized that that's not something that helps musicians in the here and now, you know, the, the graduates of this year, they still need to know how they make money, how they do their tax return and so on. Um, mm-hmm. I realized that, but I think it's something to bear in mind yeah, working lives can be organized and structured differently. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. have a basic income for everybody, and then it doesn't become so important whether right. you, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily advocating that, but I'm just saying that there's different ways of thinking about it and approaching the issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, with all of your with all of your research that you've done, I know as a sociologist, you don't want to give definitive answers, <laughs> but is there any? Are there any things that came across in your research that could be used as um, advice for current musicians on how to navigate some of the difficulties we've been discussing? Yeah, like you said, I find it difficult to give advice. But one thing I would say is that a tendency I observed in the interviews is that so-called failure or what is seen as a failure is often individualized. So musicians self-blame. For example, in the context of playing related injuries, I found that fascinating. So I did the interviews and at some stage I realized that playing related injuries were incredibly common. Um, and, And I started asking the research participants about that. And even though the interview was completely confidential, really, you know, I I don't have any interest in, in sharing these things widely, 
they they were almost nervous about talking about it in the interview to me um, because they felt that um, they might not be seen as a reliable player if they talked about their playing-related injuries, you know, that they might be seen as somebody who might go off sick. Um, they might be told that it's just an outcome of having the wrong technique and so on. Mm. So what interested me there as a sociologist was that it seems to be a really wide common problem and yet it's often individualized, right? Musicians are told, well, you just don't have the right technique. Just get mm. a mirror, practice your posture, and then you will no longer have RSI or whatever, you know, I'm just oh. And however, it seems to be so common that it also, I presume, has something to do with Working practices, you know, the amount of hours, the number of hours you have to put in, practicing in a cold hall, all those kind of right. things, you know. Um, Absolutely. And, and sorry, long-winded way to come back to your question. What I'd really <laughs> like to tell musicians is to bear in mind the wider structural issues, that it's not that not everything is down to the individual, um, to avoid self-blame, basically, that it is, you know, to take the example of playing-related injuries, it is something that is incredibly common that happens to a lot of people. I know that um, it's spoken about a bit more now in the context of music education, but it's often spoken about, um, it's often discussed as something that can be managed and that with just the right management, you can, you know, get it under control and that sets up individuals for failure because, and and I think that it's really important to try to be aware of these dynamics. And that's something I'd like to tell musicians. That's wonderful. It takes a little bit of pressure off of them. Yes, I think so. And, and I noticed something similar in the interviews I did in 2019. This was, you know, after the Me Too movement and, um, I did ask the research participants about gender inequalities, um, also about racial and class inequalities, but in relation to gender inequalities, a lot of them discussed sexual harassment and their own experiences of it. Mm. They were very clear that this was a wider structural issue. Um, And yet what I found interesting at the same time is that when they talked about how they dealt with it, um, some of them blamed themselves for not standing up you know, against it, for not doing Mm -hmm. something against it. Uh, And again, that kind of individualized failure and put the blame on them. When we know it's a wider structural issue, we know that when you work as a freelancer, it's very hard to speak out against any form of oppression. Um, and, And we know that this is exactly the tricky part of these very precarious fields of work. And now in the UK, the Musicians' Union, at least, is trying to address that. Oh, good. Um, but that, again, is something where sociological analysis really helps because we say, you know, it also it, um, sexual harassment, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that it seems to happen a lot still in creative artistic fields. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if we think back of where Me Too emerged, it's a related mm-hmm. field, right? Um, so, so, so we can gain something from our understanding that it's also very much related to the working practices that are again, very network based where your reputation matters a lot, but you don't usually have a HR departments, you know, to ask for help where you don't usually have procedures. I mean, if you freelance on a project, what is there to fall back on as an individual, (laughs) you know? unless you you have incredibly supportive colleagues and you all get together. But usually it's very difficult. So again, the message from me to musicians would be to hopefully be aware of these dynamics and not to self-blame, but to think of ways how collectively these things can be changed. I think musicians' union approach is useful and Mm -hmm. maybe other things as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. 
I think that's excellent, excellent advice, especially in the arts and with our perfectionist musicians. We want to be able to control everything on yes. our own. And sometimes, sometimes taking that pressure off of ourselves makes a big difference, even just yeah. for the individual. Yeah. And then hopefully, yeah. um, as a larger musical society, we'll be able to implement some of these changes from your research and make the working conditions a little bit better and a little more inclusive for everybody. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sharf. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing your research with us and explaining it so well and so clearly. Um, (laughs) I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for contacting me. Musicians versus the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. A very special thank you to Dr. Christina Scharf for sharing her research and insights with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Scharf or her research, we will have her full biography as well as links to her research and the other sociological resources she mentioned today on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Take some time and read through the research. It is interesting, validating, and humbling all at the same time. If you have any thoughts on this subject, please reach out and share them with us. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. Musicians vs. the World is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer is Russ Wilkes. As a fun fact, in today's episode, you heard excerpts from Maria Shibanovska's Minuet No. 4 and Melody by Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel. Both are 19th century composers that had to deal with many of the same roadblocks that Dr. Scharf mentioned today. Hensel was one of the most talented and prolific female composers of the 19th century, and Szymanowska was one of the first professional virtuoso pianists ever, even before Liszt and Clara Schumann became superstars. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, share this episode with them, or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.